Well, good morning and welcome, and you can take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Revelation 21. And we'll look together, we're just going to look at the first eight verses, and so we'll, we'll read them to begin as we then jump into the text this morning, uh, but it is a, kind of a new feeling, I feel shorter than I already am uh, this morning, back down on the, the level, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm very familiar spending a number of years, so this is, uh, I'm actually probably more comfortable here than, than out there on the stage. Um, and just so you know, I don't think they made the announcement, but we'll see. They just started stripping that gym floor last week. So Lord willing, we'll see. We've got to get creative another week. We'll do that. So the Lord's kind, and it's nice to have a big space, uh, another big space. And then technically, although everyone's on vacation here, uh, we might be able to use the new gym potentially if we really needed to. So it's kind of nice to have too much space. So I thank the Lord for that. Uh, let's look together uh, as we look to our text this morning, Revelation 21. This is an exciting text. Um, it's described in many ways in the new heavens, new earth, uh, what it's not like, but what it's not like sounds wonderful. Um, so we don't know as much what it is like as much as to say uh, we know what it's not like and we know that we'll dwell in a unique way uh, with the Lord as we see here. So let's look together. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words, uh, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, They are done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, And the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning as we look here and we're reminded of what we've seen over and over again in Revelation. Similar themes, not only in this book, but throughout the scripture as all these threads are pulled together and weaved in a way that we start to see what it is all pointing to. And although we don't have answers to every question of why in individual cases, we see the big answer to the big question of what all of this life, the creation of man and the fall of man, the redemption of man, all moving to this point of final consummation where even it would seem this millennial kingdom has come and even that has gone, that all Those who oppose you, Satan, all of his followers, and even death itself have been cast into the lake of fire. And here now, it is ready for the world to be made new. And so we long for this, look forward, and even give us eyes to see in a way that it encourages us as a motivation in the way that we continue to live in light of a great future hope. And as scripture says multiple places, a 
eternal inheritance. And so we just ask this as we look to your word this morning. In your son's name, amen. Well, I imagine, given that we are in the state of Nebraska, which apparently is the second state uh, that spends the most amount of money on fireworks, that I assume most of you celebrated the 4th of July this week. And as I thought of that, because we, of course, took a couple days and celebrated with family as well, and you think about this country, one of the phrases I think of when I think about not so much, say, 1776, but you think of before the pilgrims, the separatists, what they wanted to come to, and there's that phrase that they wanted to come to a new world, a world that was different because they wanted to get away from persecution, whether it was political or it was religious. They didn't like what was known as the old world, and they wanted a new world. And so as I studied this week, I couldn't help but think of that similar sentiment in that there was this hope and this desire to go someplace that was new and was not as difficult where they could worship freely. But if you know much about, of course, early American history or just generally 100, 200 years ago, uh, pre-penicillin, pre-modern medicine, uh, they got here and you, unfortunately, they, they found here, which was Wonderful in some ways because they were able to create certain things. And as wonderful as America is, they were still brought on that boat was sinful humanity. They were sinners and they still got to America as wonderful it is. Sea to shining sea. It's still a fallen nation, as it were, or as a fallen part of the fallen world, part of a old order that we're going to look at this morning that has passed away. Remember last week we looked at the great white throne judgment And it says in verse 11 of chapter 20 that when he saw the great white throne, him who sits upon it from whose presence, then the earth and the heaven, that is, you'd say the old world, they fled away and no place was found for them. The final judgment of the old world, all unbelievers, Satan, all of the fallen angels is dealt out in that and you see it happen at the end of that tribulation reign. But after that millennium, we're going to see there is a completely new order that is established. And that's kind of important. And I think there's a quote that I want to flow, uh, put up there because you were left with looking at the biblical information of why. Isn't the millennium wonderful? Isn't Christ reigning from David's throne But there, remember, was purpose in that millennial reign and all those promises being fulfilled. But it's not quite time for everything to be made new until the end of that thousand-year reign. And you have promises that are clearly eternal, not just a thousand years, as long as that may seem to us who are mortal. It's not that long, as Peter says. It's like a day. It's like a thousand years to the Lord. But this is what uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, who's a Messianic Jew. And I kind of thought it was a helpful way of saying this, that the millennium itself is only 1,000 years long, which, of course, for us is kind of hard to fathom, only a thousand years long. But however, according to the promises of the Davidic covenant, so you think of 2 Samuel 7, there was to be an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. And the millennial kingdom, as wonderful as it is, is still part of a, yes, remade. The curse begins to be reversed, but there are certain things, even death itself, that need to be thrown into hell itself. There are those who are going to live, Isaiah says, for a long period of time. And it's going to be, if you live to be 100, you know, you're you're dying young. But yet, there still is this, like the death is here. And so all this needs to happen at this point where it needs to be thrown into hell. And there needs to be an establishment of eternal dynasty, eternal kingdom, and eternal throne. 
Everything is fleet away at this point. At the end of this millennial reign, they're disappeared. They've been destroyed. No trace can be found of them. Some have called this the uncreation of the universe. And so our topic this morning is this new order of this new creation. And so after the millennium, a completely new order. And I like that phrase, uh, which I stole from Fruchtebaum, actually, uh, this idea of this new order, because it's, it's different, it's similar, but it's a new order of things. We're going to see some things like uh, the comparison that it's a new earth and it's a new heaven. So there's some correspondence, but it's going to be new in quality. And we will recognize, but it will not quite be what we imagine it to be. And so we're going to look at four elements of that new order this morning. Number one being this new heaven and new earth. The four elements of the new order, number one, is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This idea of new being of quality. Not necessarily chronology, but this is new. And there's some debate, as we'll see, over this, whether it's going to be a complete recreation from nothing, because it's fled away, and does that mean there's no place found and it's completely gone, and so you create something out of nothing, like in, say, Genesis 1 and 2? Or is there something more of a renewal? I don't know if it matters too much which one you take. If it is a renewal, it's going to be quite the renewal. It's going to be complete renovation. And so the chapter here opens in the same way that John's begun many of the sections in this book that he saw. He saw, looked up, and he saw a vision again here. See that kind of progression that after the millennial reign, he saw, and this is what happens next. Two passages of scripture here that we're going to see from Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66. You're going to see that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens, and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And then in Isaiah 66, this same kind of phrase, at least from an Old Testament perspective, starts to show up there. That for just as the new heavens, it says in 66, and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, so declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. What Isaiah has predicted is now a reality in John's vision. And we don't need to dig too far into Isaiah there, but I, I think the prophets of old, just very similar. The best analogy is the first advent and the second advent of Christ. So you're going to read Isaiah, and sometimes you're going to go, is this the millennial kingdom or is this the eternal kingdom? And it's a little bit of, I think, where they're not looking at it from that chronological perspective, just like you see elements of the reigning of the Messiah and then the suffering of the Messiah. And so that's just kind of a, just the way to think about it is he's just saying these things are going to happen. And then we see more of the chronology laid out throughout the progressive revelation of Scripture culminating in Revelation. But what he's predicted now has become reality. Now, future for us, future for John, but this is the reality where we are. In the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3 says it this way. Peter goes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. That is a great white throat judgment. You think of everything is going to be weighed and judged. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in a holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed. The elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's that same phraseology that we see picked up here in Revelation 21 and very typical of Revelation. It's picking up on old Revelation from the scriptures, other texts like this in Second Peter. And again, he sees these things happening all kind of together. 
And then, of course, we see there is a progression that they will happen and how there is a thousand-year reign beforehand as you get into Revelation. And you see that it is, the earth is going to be destroyed. It's going to be, it says in verse 1, new heaven, new earth, the first heaven, the first earth is passed away. And there's going to be no longer any sea, which is an interesting kind of statement, which at least for me, I try to track down a little bit. And most people look at it and go that it's either likely separation that sea represents. And so there's no longer going to be this kind of separation that there was, uh, say, post-flood. Some people look at it that way. This idea that most of the earth is made of water and most of our bodies are made of water. And so you could say all of life is kind of water-based and some people suppose perhaps maybe that will not be the case, which of course I'm not sure which of those is the best understanding. All I know is that it says there's no longer gonna be these large bodies of sea that we know today. There's a river that flows from the throne of God. So there's water, it's seemingly in the eternal kingdom. But he specifically states here, in this way, that's similar in some ways. It's like, but it's different. And one of the ways it's uniquely different is you're not going to see the sea, whether separation or just the way the world works is going to be different. Because even thinking of the sea and you get into weather patterns and people smarter than me and some of that is just say the whole order of things and the way weather and all that works will just be different. And one way to communicate that is say, there's no longer any sea. What that looks like, I don't know but it'll work itself out. And I like, as we're going to see later, what the descriptions are. It's good enough for me as you look towards this new heaven and new earth, the way it is described, what is not there, and of course, what is there as well. The word John uses here does not necessarily mean, as I said, new in this chronological sense, but new in quality, whether it's going to be completely renovated or whether it's going to be renewed. The, the picture here is one of something that is remade, or made distinctly new. And the way I think of it, especially if you think of it in the renovation side of things, you're all familiar, I'm sure, with, if you're like my family and you watch the uh, HGTV shows where they renovate something and it's fixer upper and all those things, and they go into a home and it looks a certain way and they rip it down everything, they take it down to its studs. And by the end of the show, you know, you at least on one of the shows you have kind of, you know, they're Texans, are y'all ready for, to see your fixer upper? And they pull back it and they show them the house. And it looks like the same house, kind of. But there's a way in which it looks like a completely new house. And that's kind of at least a little bit of the picture I have in my own mind. Imagine something similar here that, again, it's, there's familiar correspondence, but it is new. It is quality. It is something that we will say, that looks familiar, but I would say drastically better maybe even more than different. It's just drastically better. We don't have a whole lot of information, and so you can't speculate too much. Uh, one of my kind of favorite, I guess you could almost call it a poetic descriptions of this reality, is if you get to the final book, and there's some spoiler alerts here, of the Narnia series, Chronicles of Narnia, and you get to the final book of The Last Battle, and you get to the very end, and you see all of Narnia kind of go away, and it's based on these passages, Revelation 20, Revelation 21. And some of the phraseologies that, that C.S. Lewis uses there is that the new Narnia compared to the old one is a deeper country. Again, he's just using human language to say something was shallow, like this world is kind of, it's here, but it's shallow relative to the deeper country. Every rock, he says, and every flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. The new Narnia is described as different from the old one, quote, as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. He kind of goes on that 
uh, Aslan explains to them that th- this is kind of the, 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 the end of the introduction, the, the beginning. It's, it's the first chapter, and, and we tend to look at life as, oh, the end is the end. And no, this is really the beginning of life, the new heavens and the new earth, which is, which is hard as temporal beings to grasp. But again, it seems to be here to encourage us that it will be similar but different. It's different. And one of the ways, though it is similar, you'll see here, is that it has a capital. We're familiar with capitals, and even, we won't get into it this much this week, but even the the phrase of uh, using the language of nations is mentioned as well. But it goes on in verse 2 to say that it has a capital city. Because John looks up again in verse 2, and he says, I saw the holy city. And so it's a new heavens, new earth, and it has a new capital. But there's a sense in which the new Jerusalem is already existing. It exists in heaven I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This is, as we know from our Bibles, the second city named Jerusalem. And there is an old Jerusalem, the first city, the city of David. It's a historic city, which you look and you can go visit that city today. But it isn't this city. This is a new, eternal, heavenly Jerusalem that's actually talked about quite a bit in Scripture. And actually, I think if we, we, we die and, and our spirits go where? They, they go into the presence of the Lord. It seems to be this heavenly city is probably what is alluded to. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 says, uh, there's a whole context here of saying, don't be under the law. Don't be under the, the slave. And he uses an analogy in Galatians between Hagar and Sarah. That is, you want to be a child of the promised one. And it doesn't really matter if you're, Genetically speaking, Hebrew or Jewish is the point. It's going to be the gospel saves and um, you want to be a spiritual child is, is his point in Galatians 4. But he says this, that tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, only by the servant woman and one by the free woman. But the son by the servant woman had been born according to the flesh, while the son by the free woman through the promise. This is spoken with allegory, for these women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children into slavery, and she is Hagar. Now this is Hagar is now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But he says the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And again you get into Hebrews. Hebrews eleven, verse nine, he says, By faith. Talking of Abraham, he sojourned in the land of promises in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And a little bit later, chapter later, Hebrews 12, again, you have this idea of this heavenly city, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the festival gathering and the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. This new Jerusalem that it's speaking of does not belong to the first creation. The first creation is gone. The first earth, the, you could say the first Jerusalem is gone. This is the new Jerusalem that's coming out of heaven that descends. And you're even going to see some dimensions which we'll leave for uh, kind of 
the next section next week before we get too far into it. But it's described as something majestic, even something that you could say is otherworldly, something that you almost can't even understand as you look at how could this all fit together. But again, and we make the assumption that it's going to obey our laws. But it's a new heaven and it's a new earth with a new order and new laws. I assume gravity works the same way, but again, you don't know, right? So how do we know? We don't know until we get there. We know it's a new order and therefore it's going to be different and God can do and create in the way that he wants. But it's prepared for in a way, and you kind of just see this analogy where Babylon is a harlot, right? And over and over again, you see the same phrase that it is like a bride adorned for her husband. It's being prepared. It has been built by God and it's a heavenly city which is going to descend. John 14, think of that passage that Christ is preparing a place for us. It says in John 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus talking. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. This has been being prepared for a very long time. You get ready for a wedding. I know some people have shorter engagements. We had a really short engagement of you know, four months. Some people might have a, a year-long engagement. Uh, but this is something that's been prepared since the beginning. This new Jerusalem is being prepared and comes down as a bride adorned for her husband. But not only is there, you're going to see these elements of a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to see not only that glorious picture, but another glorious picture that there's going to be this new relationship with the creator. And I say new again as quality because as believers, we even now have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And yet we also long for a day when we see him face to face. And it would even seem that as wonderful as the millennial reign will be, there's going to be a longing for this new heavens and new earth, which is interesting to think about even though we're with him. But looking forward, this new relationship is not just with creatures, but even all of creation is going to be uniquely relating. If you look at verse three, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. And so this is again, Christ is ruling from Jerusalem on the throne of David in the millennial reign, but the heavenly Jerusalem has not come down. And so this is different. This is, as it says, this is new. And the tabernacle of God, the dwelling of God is among men and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them. The supreme joy and glory of the new heavens and the new earth is going to be the dwelling of God among men. The person of God present as where the spirit of God through the son presents. This dwelling you see throughout the scriptures over and again, you, you see it promised in the old as well as in the new. Uh, John chapter 14, which picks up on Ezekiel 37, 27. Jesus answered to say to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance and all 
that I said to you. And again, with the Spirit, there is the dwelling. If you go to 1 Corinthians, that's the whole picture of not just uh, individual believers, but the church. He dwells among us. It's not a tabernacle over there. It's not a building or whether a school or a church building, but it is with his church where he dwells in those who believe in him. You see that throughout the promise of the gospel is throughout the, the New Testament. But yet here, this is a, not just a different relationship we have as we come to Christ through the gospel, but with all creation, with the heavenly Jerusalem descending, he will dwell with all of creation uniquely. And you're going to see that out of all the dwelling places throughout all of history, the closest probably comparison is going to be looking back to Genesis and that picture of Adam walking in the garden with God that he dwelled with him and he had a simple walk with God through the cool of the evening. There's nothing that's going to come close to any experience in this life to that. And so you see that there will be a new relationship with the creator himself. And again, we'll kind of build on that. I think you'll, you'll see a lot of that in the next week as you look at the rest of this chapter. But a new heaven, a new earth, a new relationship with the creator. And then thirdly, you're going to see a, a new relationship with sin and suffering. Or you could say no relationship, maybe is the better way. But it is to say we have a relationship with this earth, with earthly things, with sin and tragedy and suffering. And verse 4 says that's going to change. There's a difference between this present earth and this future earth. He goes on to say, when God dwells among his people in this heavenly state, at that moment, of course, remember at the great white throne, he just cast even death into Hades or thrown into the lake of death and Hades or thrown into the lake of fire. And then it goes on to say verse four, which he's already said in actually Revelation seven so far, it's this idea, this promise that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, which comes from Isaiah. And there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And you could almost even say, as I said, if you look at Revelation 7, you could start saying, John, you're being a little repetitive, but this is the kind of thing I like to hear over and over and over again because the promise towards the, the martyred, the tribulation saints who are, are martyred, it says this promise to them in the same way. It says, for this reason there, before the throne, remember this is tribulation, if you remember chapter 7, uh, the martyred saints, and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary, and he who sits on the throne will dwell over them, and they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them and will guide them to the springs of the water of life, which of course is, you're going to see that next here. He offers those springs of water freely, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So just a beautiful way of picturing what it looks like to live in a world without the consequences of sin and the reality of suffering. It comes out of Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 9. It says, And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish bank for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the coverings, which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. And so this is movement in Isaiah towards not only, again, just the... Uh, restoration of Israel, but of all things. He'll stretch it out over all nations and he will swallow up death for all time. And Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces. It's comprehensive and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for 
Yahweh has spoken and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God in whom we have hoped that he would save us. This is Yahweh in whom we have hoped. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Again, a new relationship with sin and with suffering. But the way I think of this, the, the dramatic nature of this is the way that only John can describe what it is like is not so much with the positives. You could say the positive would be at least uh, God dwelling among men. Of course, we don't know what experientially that quite looks like, but that would be a positive thing. And so he's left with saying negatives. The new heaven and new earth is not like this earth where there are tears. It's not like this earth where there is death. It's not like this earth where there is mourning or there is crying or there is pain. They say those things are part of the first order, the first world, and those things have passed. Those things have gone. That is the drastic difference. It's not as if people are going to enter into heaven weeping or crying. And this is just the, the phraseology of saying, this is the promise. Those things are part of the first order, and there is a new order. And in that new order, you're going to have a new relationship with sin and suffering, and that it no longer exists. Which again, for us, how do we comprehend something that we have never experienced? Except for to say we have experienced Sadness and disappointment and suffering and pain and therefore the idea of having no more of those things sounds pretty good to me. There shall no longer be any death. The curse, the greatest curse, is completely not only reversed but cast out of all human existence. And again, to see that affirmation here towards the end, you're wondering, are you going to get to a, a new heaven, a new earth? And we're going to see there's going to be a new tree. And you might just think, you're going to go eat of that tree, right? Mess it all up. And this is, again, the promise to say, no, no, that, that was of that first world. That is not possible in the new heavens and the new earth. All those things have passed away. This is a new heaven, new earth, new relationship with God, new relationship with sin and suffering. The curse has been completely reversed. And lastly, there is a new promise that he is stamping this guarantee here. And again, new, you think of, like I said, new is his idea here in this passage. If you look at the, the Greek, it's more of, of quality than of chronology. And by that, there is a, a new promise. And I don't mean it's new, new in the sense that it hasn't been made before. It's just to say it's reaffirmed here that at the end, he affirms in verse five that behold, I am making all things new. The one who sits on the throne has said, behold, I'm making not some, not a few, but everything, all things are new. And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. Which go back to that phrase we've seen, and we could try, he said a little, we're not gonna take the time this morning, but this idea where we've seen faithful and true from the vision of Christ in chapter one to the reminder that he is faithful and he is true. In fact, he's gonna anchor that promise. How do we know? How can we trust in it? Because who is making that promise? Verse six, he's saying, look, he said to me, they are done. What he has said has been fulfilled, that has happened. And who's the guarantor? I am, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. That is to say, he is going to give eternal life and he does not charge. That is the offer. It is without cost. We'll come back to you, but he, verse 7 continues. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
It's the language we've seen before in Ephesians, the son language that in the Roman Empire. It is the son who inherits. So again, this is not so much a comment to say, you know, the gender side of things. It's just simply say you want to be the inheritor, and the inheritor in the Roman world is the son. Ephesians 1.14 talks about inheritance, the overcomers. In him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Let's say Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is the guarantor. He is the down payment. He is the signer. You may not have everything today, but you can be sure you will receive everything that is to be yours. And what are they? Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit what? These things, this new heaven, this new earth, this new Jerusalem, the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Again, there is an inheritance that is in heaven that Peter talks about um, that according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain what? An inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So I find it comforting that there is this movement towards the Lord saying, look, you need comfort, you need assurance, and I'm going to give it to you by making this promise according to myself. Look at me, the one who is the beginning, the one who is end, the one who is in complete control. And even when it looks as if maybe you can't see a way out or, or, or see hope, it's, it's here. It will happen. It's just a matter of when will it happen. And so it's a new heaven, new earth, new relationship both with the creator, sin and suffering, and then, again, this new promise. The old experience related to this present creation is gone forever. All the mourning, all the suffering, disease, pain, death that has characterized our human existence, not just in our life, because you could say in many ways with some technology, we've, we've minimized those things, but it's still there. But in the forever, the eternal new creation, there's no death, no decay, no decline, no waste. The inheritance can't be touched because it is undefiled. It is unfading and it is incorruptible. He's making all things new. You see, the citizens of that are the ones who are the inheritors, who are the overcomers. If we look back into Revelation, we look at those who are protected in Christ, those who have believed the words of the gospel, who have repented of their sins. Those are, you could say, the citizens of the new heavens and earth, the inheritors of all of these things. And to him, he will be their God and they will be his Son, that is what he ultimately declares here. Those who hunger for these, for, for righteousness, the ones who thirst and who receive the water of life without, without cost. Think of salvation and being fully paid. And that offer throughout scripture and even here towards the end you can even feel that sense in which you think of a book like Revelation, and, and I think of, yes, we understand there's a, a human author that the Spirit works through. Um, you know, Peter talks about that it's the Spirit who carries along as he's write, writing these things, but the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit who writes these things. And you can feel that even this, which is describing this future time, there is still that 
evangelistic element even here another reminder of an invitation it would you feel it kind of saying you want to be part of this come to Christ come to the water without cost and this isn't even the last invitation there's one more chapter and there's going to be one more invitation to come to Christ to drink of the water of life that costs nothing and there's going to be not only another warning here before we close today in verse 8 but also there's another warning in chapter 22. So over and over again, even in the midst of all these promises, he says, in essence, laying out, which are you going to take part in? He overviews the new heavens and the new earth with, I'd say in many ways, a reminder. It feels inviting to me, at least in verse 7, that I give, verse 6 and 7, I give to the one who thirsts from the spring's water without cost. Waters of life. He overcomes will inherit these things. But he also does so with this warning, a serious warning in verse 8, which you could say as well is a guarantee and is a promise because of who God is. Just as sure as he will give these things to those who are overcomers, to those who are in Christ, just as sure as that is true, the serious punishment is just as true and is going to happen. There is no second chance here as we saw at the end of chapter 20. And so he reminds. And you kind of go again, why remind? Because this book was for those who are reading it even today. And so there are those here who maybe need that reminder. Even believers need the reminder to think of the world that we walk and live in for those whom we love and those in our families and friends and those we work with, that there is the reality. We've seen it for months and months, really, both of judgment, but also in this reminder of if anyone's name, think of the last verse of chapter 20, is not found in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. You just can't run away from it. And the eternal nature of that, just as it corresponds to the eternal life for those who trust and believe in Christ. But it says in verse 8 that for the cowardly and the unbelieving or the unfaithful, the abominable and the murderers and the sexually immoral persons and the sorcerers and the adulterers and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You have these, these phrases, right? It's, it's the, the first things have passed away, the first heaven, the first earth. The, you don't see it as really the second Jerusalem. It's, it's more of the, not the second heaven, it's new and new and new. But it's, it's that picture. And as we looked at last week, that, that, that picture of salvation in the gospels that Jesus gives in John chapter three of a, a new birth that you want to not be born once, but as he tells Nicodemus, you want to be born again. And those who are born twice, as it's been said, die once. But if you're born once, you die twice. Why? Because there's first death, death in this life, but there's also second death that comes at the end here. And you might wait a long time and there, there, there's suffering in the wait, but it is coming where even something worse comes in the second death, which is called the lake of fire at the end of chapter 20. And here as well, the lake that burns with fire and brimstones. And so he gives the list of those who are excluded whose lives are characterized by these actions and their correspondent not um, living righteously and obediently, rather disobedient, unbelieving, unfaithful, rejecting even, you could say, for those that live through that beautiful millennial reign, still choosing rather to be with, say, in a selfish way, their own desires or following Satan himself. 
Those whose lives are characterized by such things give evidence, ultimately, that they are not saved. And it contrasts with a beautiful, blissful world and reality, which I want to be part of, where there's no tears and no crying and no pain and no suffering. But it is to say, there's a way to be part of that, and there's a way to be excluded from that. And so as we look at those four elements this morning, of all the things that are new, you want to partake in those, there's only way to be, there's only one way to be a partaker of those things, is to be an inheritor. And the only way to be an inheritor is to be one who trusts in the work of Christ, what he has done for you. If you are an inheritor, you should be encouraged. You should be excited. You should be ready. Even as you look back at Peter, that you should be ready and motivated to do ministry. I think back to that slide, Second Peter chapter 3, that he uses it as motivation. Kind of the middle of that verse, since all these things are to be destroyed, first heaven, first earth, in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening and the coming of the day of God? We're looking for a new heavens, a new earth where righteousness dwells. He's saying it should motivate holy conduct and godly living, which I know we recently have looked at Peter and you saw that over and over again, the godly conduct that he wants to motivate. One of the things that should motivate us is this reality of this coming new heavens and new earth. But if you're someone who could not give an answer, if you were asked where you would go if you died today, then my urge is to take the scripture serious, to take God seriously, take him as the alpha and the omega, and that he is one who will be faithful to his word because he is not only the alpha and the omega, his words are faithful and true. Both for those who come to Christ, he doesn't charge, he's not asking for anything, it's the water is given for those who repent and believe for free, but also he's gonna be faithful to his promise to judge as well. And so, in both cases, both those who are inheritors and those who are not. This whole passage is an encouragement to those who are inheritors, but it's just the reality that we should take God's word seriously, take his promises seriously, and look to this reality and be reminded that, as Acts 4 says, that there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven and earth given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Christ. And even at the end of all things, there is this reminder to come and find water, the spring of the water of life without cost. If you thirst, you need to come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning to see all these beautiful and wonderful things. It doesn't take one long to walk in this first order of things in a, in a fallen world where there is suffering and there is tragedy to not long for a new world order where not only Christ is reigning and ruling but also even that we see these things that death itself is cast out that a heavenly Jerusalem has descended and that you will dwell among us forever encourages us Encourage us this morning as we look to these things, as we sing together, and as we look towards the ways that we can live this out and be salt and light in all the places that you have.
providentially put us in this life for the time that you have given. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.